So I read. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it, for it will be very severe. The doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I, uh, will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of famine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. Um, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphenath Paniah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, 
God has made me forget all the hardships in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. This was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was uh, famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph um, opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. Father, we want to acknowledge before we come to your word that the power is not in us. Uh, there is power in your word. Your spirit is the spirit of power. There's power in the name of Jesus. And we ask that that power would be at work in us this evening to change us, to transform us, to work through our weakness for your glory. Amen. I want you to think about the past week. Ask yourself if these words describe the week that has just passed. Power struggle. For many of us, that's pretty accurate. Of course, there's the DA, the ANC, the EFF, uh, our president and his running battles with the public protector. There's that whole circus. But there's also just Monday morning. You get in your car, you get in a taxi, and what happens between your home and your place of work, your place of study, in that vehicle, what happens can easily be described as a power struggle. Then that becomes the storyline, the theme for the rest of your day. People jostling for position, cutting each other off. Uh, they've all read the latest buzz book on how to get ahead. Why? Well, because knowledge is power. They've all watched the TED Talks, and so they approach the work environment, the study environment, strategically. That means they do not think of you as a human being or even a colleague, but as a competitor, a gladiator, an obstacle who needs to be overcome. It's a race. It's a power grab. So many of our interactions are power plays. That's why we talk about office politics or campus politics. If you get out of there at the end of the day with your life, you still have to get back in the car or the taxi, bully your way back through the traffic until you finally get home. And then if you're married, that's when the real power struggle starts. <laughs> the battle of the sexes. Who's wearing the pants in this relationship? After three or four hours of exhausting hours of that particular arm wrestle, you fall into bed, it's your only refuge. Just before you drift off, you think, let me just check the phone. Big mistake. 26 WhatsApps on the family group. The latest war between your aunts over where you're going to spend Christmas, over your grandfather's tomb unveiling, over the, who's paying the school fees, whatever. Now you're in a fight with yourself to try and get to sleep. And then you wake up on Tuesday, and it starts all over again. Life in this city can feel like a relentless power struggle. Whether it's party politics, office politics, family politics, the politics of the bedroom, we want the power, and there are others who want to take it away from us. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. As the Apostle Paul says, 
let me show you a more excellent way. And we begin to find that way in the story of Joseph. We're in the middle of that story. Uh, We're right in the middle of a series on the providence of God, especially for our students who've just joined us. You can, if if you'd like to catch up, you can get, I'm sure you can get the uh, sermons on the website. Through the story of Joseph, we've looked at God's providence over sin. That's where we started. Then we looked at God's providence over circumstance and suffering. And tonight, we are looking at God's providence over power. We have a helpful summary just to catch us up uh, since last time in verses 9 to 13 of the chapter that Miriam read for us. So have a look there. I'm just going to read it. It's a great uh, summary of what's happened. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry and his servants with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office. And the baker was hanged. It's been 13 years since Joseph's brothers sold him to some passing traders. He's gone from being his father's favorite son to slavery in Potiphar's house to prison. It's been a downward spiral. Any upturn has proved to be nothing but a false dawn. Until... The most powerful man in the known world has a pair of disturbing dreams. This is something he has no power over. He asks his wise men to interpret. They are powerless to do so. But one of the servants in his court remembers a Hebrew slave from his time in prison. He could interpret dreams. Pharaoh summons him. Then listen to how it plays out from verse 14 in chapter 41. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It is not in me. Those are very important words for us to meditate on this evening. It is not in me. I don't have the power. The power is God's. Joseph lived in slavery for 11 years before he met Pharaoh's officials. After he interpreted the cupbearer's dream in prison, he said to him, and I'm just quoting from chapter 40, verse 14, it's one chapter before, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this prison. We read later on that when the cupbearer was restored to Pharaoh's palace, he didn't remember Joseph. He completely forgot him. Another two whole years passed. Please bear in mind, we are talking about two years in an Egyptian prison 19 centuries before Christ. It is not club made. We don't like being stuck in the bank for two hours. These were two long, 
painful years in what Joseph calls a pit. And now he's standing in front of the man who can give him his freedom with a single word. And when that man asks him for an interpretation, he says, I can't do it. Can you imagine the temptation to say anything but that? You will say anything at this point to commend yourself, to carry favor with Pharaoh, to get out of that pit. 13 years. Joseph says, I can do nothing. I don't have the power. If 13 years has taught him anything, it's taught him that he is not in control. God is in control. Either way, Pharaoh tells him the dreams. Seven fat cows are eaten by seven thin cows. Seven healthy ears of grain are eaten by seven withering ears of grain. In the ancient world, the number seven symbolized fate. But Joseph's interpretations show that the power in these dreams is anything but fate. The power is in the providence of God. There are four parts to Joseph's interpretation. First, the two dreams are one. Second, the number seven stands for seven years. Third, a time of great famine is going to follow on from a time of plenty and in a sense devour it, swallow it up. Finally, and this is the key to the whole thing, God is in control of it all. How do we know it's the key? Well, Joseph makes the point three times. And in Hebrew storytelling, repetition is for emphasis. So, chapter 41, verse 25. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 32. The thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. It's clear who has the power in this situation, and it is not the Egyptian wise men. It's not Joseph the prophet. It's not even Pharaoh the king. It is the Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The power is his. Joseph goes on. He suggests a course of action. It is so wise in its simplicity, but also in its attention to detail. I kind of wish he was around to consult to ESCOM. <laughs> what does he propose? He simply proposes that the government of Pharaoh be aligned with the government of God. That the will of Pharaoh be aligned with the will of God. Why? Well, because any alternative spells disaster. And so they must store in the time of plenty to prepare for the time of famine. Store in the time of plenty to prepare for the time of famine. And then he proposes an administrative system to Look after this process, to manage this process. The centerpiece of that system is a wise and discerning man to oversee it all. Of course, Pharaoh immediately recognizes what Potiphar and what the prison warder had recognized before him. There is no one more qualified than Joseph himself. Why? Is it Joseph's gifting? Is it Joseph's capacity, his study experience, his life experience? No. He has the Spirit of God in him. What happens next is what we really want to focus on this evening, the exaltation of Joseph. Just remember the power of the Egyptian pharaohs. I don't know if you remember that from school history. It was absolute. They were worshipped as gods. We get a sense of this when we look at their tombs. 
the Great Pyramid at Giza, built for Pharaoh Khufu, is 147 meters high. That's one and a half football pitches straight up into the air. That's how high it is. It contains more than two million blocks of chiseled rock, each one weighing more than a Ford Ranger. Two million Ford Rangers, one tombstone. It's his tombstone. That's what they did for his death. Imagine how they worshipped him when he was still alive. Imagine the power he wielded. Well, Joseph is exalted to that sort of power. He's second only to Pharaoh. He's over Pharaoh's house. He's over Pharaoh's lands. He's over the whole of Egypt. He wears the symbol of Pharaoh's power, the signet ring. He's dressed in the garment of royalty. There's a gold chain placed around his neck. When he rides in the royal chariot, someone rides ahead of him calling out, bow the knee, bow the knee. I mean, that would be something, wouldn't it? You've got to pick and pay. Bow the knee, bow the knee. No one moves without Joseph's permission. No one in Egypt moves without Joseph's permission. He's even given a new name of great honor. I mean, it's bling and it's blue light brigade like nothing we've seen. Not even Razmataz comes close. Joseph is exalted. He's exalted. The key to properly understanding his exaltation is to remember where he came from. He came from the place of deepest humility. He is set over Pharaoh's house, but not before he's lost his elevated position in his father's house, and then in Potiphar's house, and then in the prison warder's house. He's dressed in royal robes, but not until he's first been stripped of the garments of his favored status, first by his brothers, and then by Potiphar's wife. You remember in our first two parts of the series. It seems that God would not exalt Joseph. He would not exalt him before he had completely humbled him. He would not expose Joseph to the temptations of the power that so easily corrupts without preparing him first. And of course it worked. God's purposes, his plans, always work. The arrogant young man who used to provoke his brothers with their father's favored status with their father's favoritism, he would rub their noses in it. That man is no more. He is long gone, long forgotten. The Joseph who stands in front of Pharaoh 13 years later will not make a grab for power. He just says plainly, it is not in me. Only God has the power. Then and only then will God exalt him. He does it for Joseph's sake, but much more than that, God has his own purposes. And we're reminded of those purposes in verses 49 to 52, so just scan over that. I'll just highlight a few of the clues. We see in verse 49 that Joseph stores up grain like the sand of the seashore. That's the language of the promise to Abraham. In verse 50, Joseph has two sons. The second son is named Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful. Joseph is being made fruitful and he's multiplying. That was the thing Adam was supposed to do, if you remember, back to Genesis 1 and 2. It's the very thing God promised Abraham. I will make you fruitful. I will make you into a nation. And he's doing all of this in the district of On. On was the center of sun worship in Egypt. So what's the message? 
The God of Israel is demonstrating who has the power. It's not the man God, Pharaoh. It's not the sun God in on. The Lord has the power and he is working through the humiliation of Joseph to exalt him for a very specific purpose. Verse 57. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. God is exercising his providence over the powers of this earth to fulfill the promise and bless the nations. Now what we read here is not unique to Joseph. This is who our changeless God is and this is what he does. He exercises providence over power. He is in the business. He's in the business of humbling the proud. We need to hear that this evening. He's in the business of humbling the proud and exalting the humble to bless the nations. That's who he is. That's what he does. Let me show you just a few examples from the Bible. Hannah, you remember Hannah? She was the mother of Samuel the prophet. She sings this same truth after God blesses her with a child she never should have had, Samuel. Let me read it for you. There is none holy like the Lord. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol. He raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. God exercises providence over power. The prophet Isaiah sings the same song. This is what he sings. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. One more song. Because like Hannah, there is another young mother centuries later who praises God for his providence over power. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she sings about Isaiah's day of the Lord in these words. The Lord has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring, Forever. God humbles Joseph to exalt him so that he can further his promise to Abraham and bless the nations. And when we read the rest of the Bible, we find that's who God is and that is what he does. And he does it all the way to the very end of the Bible until he has finally and fully kept his promise to Abraham. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. If you get there, why don't you just shout it out, Philippians chapter 2, the page number, chapter 2, verse 6. Nine eight one, nine eighty one in your uh, church Bibles. 
This explains what Mary was singing about. Read there with me. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, And placed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is precisely the pattern we see in Joseph. Did you see it there? Joseph is the sign pointing us to Jesus, who is the reality. Jesus starts not in the family of the promise, but in the throne room of heaven. His father doesn't need to humble him, he humbles himself. As God, he humbles himself to take on flesh. He goes further still and he becomes a slave. He goes further still and he suffers the humiliation of death on a cross. And then, and only then, God exalts him. He gives him more than a new name of honor. He gives him the name that is above every name. And it's not just the official in the chariot ahead of him who calls out his name. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not just the citizens of Egypt on a particular street. Every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Why? Because all power in heaven and on earth is his. Jesus will bring the rule of rescue and blessing to every nation. And so he is worthy of worship from every nation. My friends, the story of Joseph is teaching us this. This is what it's teaching us. Our God exercises providence over power. Our God humbles the proud and exalts the humble to bless the nations. And he does it supremely in Jesus Christ. That's who he is. That's what he does. And you've heard this before. It changes everything. God's providence over power changes everything. Let me give you three examples. It changes how we relate to earthly power. It changes how we relate to heavenly power. And it changes how we think about the purpose of power. First, providence changes how we relate to earthly power. If the Bible is true, we don't have to fear earthly power. You remember December 2017? I don't know if you remember, the ANC was electing its, its new president. The whole nation was on the edge of its seat. Just before the results were announced, News 24 was running a kind of a live commentary. It was actually actually mad. It was mad. So-and-so is standing up and stretching. What does that mean? Political analysis. So-and-so just laughed. Does Zuma have the edge? So-and-so scratched his belly. Is Ramaphosa making a comeback? It was completely out of hand. But I was as tightly wound as everybody else, hanging off every word. Until I asked a Christian friend how he thought it would all pan out. And he said, you know what? I've actually stopped worrying about all of that. I said, what? How? Why? He said, you know, because either way, God is still on the throne. And he didn't say it was like, you know, like it was some sort of textbook answer. I could see that he was completely sincere. And he was completely convicted of the truth that God is on the throne. Of course, I could see that he was completely right. Charles Colson, 
who served very closely to Richard Nixon, said this, salvation doesn't come on Air Force One. Salvation doesn't come in the form of our president, Cyril Ramaphosa. It doesn't come in the form of Musi Maimani or Julius Malema. The providence of God means we don't have to obsess over who's in power and what they're doing. God took Nebuchadnezzar, undoubtedly the greatest power in the ancient world, greater than all of the pharaohs, and he made him eat grass like a goat. I don't think he's too concerned about Malema, Umkubani, or Ramaphosa. I don't think he bothers too much about Trump or Putin. Unless they turn to King Jesus, they too will be humbled in God's time. We don't have to fear worldly powers. We don't have to be constantly anxious about what the future holds for us or for our children. Because in the future, Jesus is still going to be on the throne. So whatever is happening in global politics, Christians should live with a genuine optimism. I'm not talking about a false pessimism that says there's absolutely no hope. And I'm not talking about a false optimism that says God will make sure that I always live a comfortable life because that's actually his job. No, a genuine optimism that recognizes King Jesus is on the throne and that the future is secure in him. That future means blessing for the nations. We don't have to fear earthly powers, whether they are on CNN, in the office, in our classrooms, our lecture halls, in our homes. We can speak the truth to power, confidently, lovingly, like Martin does. I don't know if you know this about Martin. He doesn't advertise it, but he goes over to England And he speaks the truth to the Anglican establishment who at this very minute are busy throwing out the Bible. And he tells them the truth. And then he comes home and he fights for that same truth at the Human Rights Commission. Defending evangelical Christianity's right to exist. Now, how? Why? Where does he get the courage? Well, knowing him, just a bit. It's from the deepest conviction that Jesus is king. And so we don't have to be afraid. Martin has that conviction. But we have the same spirit of Christ living in us. We can have the same conviction. And so we can have the same courage. Providence changes how we relate to earthly power. If Jesus is on the throne, that changes everything. It also changes how we relate to heavenly power. In the upside-down kingdom of God, it is the humble who are exalted, and it is the proud who are humbled. The world says, this is what the world says to us, define yourself. You have that power. Define yourself. Then be yourself. Express yourself. Make a name for yourself. Right? Isn't that the messaging? The apostle Peter says, humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. King Jesus says that those who want to be first must be last and servants of all. Unless we can say with Joseph, 
it is not in me. We are not ready to be loved by God or to be useful in his kingdom. It's only when we get to the end of ourselves that God begins to make something of us. Paul says this to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, God is saying this to Midrand this evening to us. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying what Joseph said. It is not in you. It is not in me. The power is not in us. It is in the exalted Christ. Unless you come to the end of yourself, God will do nothing with you. Unless you recognize that you can never do it on your own, that you are entirely dependent on him, you will either be excluded from the kingdom or absolutely useless in it. Anyone arrives saying, here I am, I've come to do it, God will say, just take a seat for a moment. Just sit on the bench. I'll come to you in a moment. Now, some of us here need to realize this for the very first time. There's some here who need to understand that you do not have the power to fix yourself. You don't have it in you to get to God. You don't have the power to exalt yourself to heaven. That's why Jesus had to humble himself and come to us. The question is, of course, will you accept him? Will you forget your pride and him embrace him this evening? This evening. Because tomorrow never comes. And until you do that, you are in a very dangerous place. It's my duty to say that to you this evening. Either you accept the power of God's love for you in Christ now, or you are going to face the power of his judgment later. It's one or the other. There's no middle road. There's no fence in this thing. Throw yourself at his feet. I'm pleading with you. Throw yourself at his feet. Let him pick you up, embrace you, exalt you to a place in the family. That's what he does. That's who he is. The rest of us, we need to be reminded of this truth again and again and again and again. The deeper we humble ourselves in the service of others, the more powerful we will be in the hands of God. As soon as we make a snatch at power and try to do things ourselves, we are limited to our own resources. And my friends, let's be honest, that's not a lot to work with, is it? As soon as you try and do it yourself, you're limited to your own resources. And there's really not much there. We don't have to play power games like everyone else. We don't have to make a grab for power. In the upside-down kingdom of God, it's as we discover that we are empty of any true and lasting power, it's then that we are at our most powerful 
in the hands of God, but only in his hands. God works through our weakness. He doesn't remove our weakness. He works through our weakness. And this is where the power ministries are such an offense to the gospel. They really are. You know these guys on the billboards? The posters, mainly in townships, because they like to pray on the desperate. The purple shiny suit, the flashy smile, the beautiful woman on the shoulder. Most of them would love to claim that they are a prophet in the line of Joseph, wouldn't they? But you are not likely to read on their poster, Prophet Sunshine, the power is not in me. If anything, you're going to read Prophet Sunshine, the power is in me, right? That's not how God's power works. It's not how he exercises his providence. That is not the logic of power in the kingdom. He prefers to work through weakness, so that no one can boast. And so should we. Because really, if we are honest, weakness is all we have to offer. It's all we've got. Providence changes how we relate to earthly power and to heavenly power. Finally, providence changes how we understand the purpose of power. In the world, the purpose of power is to bless myself. In the kingdom, the purpose of power is to bless others. So parents, use your power to bless your children, not to bully them. Husbands, serve your wives. Managers, use your power to bless your employees. Nurses, you have the power. Use it to serve your patients. Doctors, be a blessing to nurses. The point is this. All of us, every single one of us here this evening, exercises influence over others. No matter how small that influence is, we, we have a sphere of influence. And in Christ, we have the power to exercise it in loving, sacrificial service. We have the power to bless. That's what Joseph did. And much more importantly, that's what Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so powerful that you can use weakness, humility, and service to save the world. You can use a cross to bring glory to yourself. Lord, we pray that you will bring us to the end of ourselves. Help us like Joseph to see that it is not in me. Use us, Lord, in all our weakness to be a mighty blessing to the nations. We pray this in the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.